Welcome, I'm Dr. Robert Groves, your host for the Groves Connection podcast. The Groves Connection brings you intimate conversations with pundits, providers, patients, leaders, and laypeople, all to help us understand a contradiction. How can our healthcare system be both magnificent and yet so deeply flawed? We're going inside healthcare to talk candidly with those who know. What they have to say may delight, surprise, frustrate, or at times even anger you. But I invite you to get curious and listen to the truth about healthcare and those who want to fix it. Maybe the answers have been there all along. We just need to make the connection. Are you ready to connect? Corey Feldman, welcome to the Groves Connection. Thank you for having me, Dr. Groves. Listen, I uh, ever since we met, uh, I've been wanting to have this conversation because you have uh, such a fascinating background. I was on your show uh, not too long ago, and uh, uh, we had a great conversation there, and I thought, wow, it would be really interesting for my listeners to, to hear your story. So uh, where I usually like to start out is uh, way back when, uh, grade school, elementary school, Where'd you grow up? What kind of life was that? What were you thinking then? Uh, I grew up in uh, Westchester, New York, which is a nice suburb of New York City, about 50 minutes north of the city. Uh, to you know, Born to two loving parents who are fortunately still together. I'm one of four siblings, the oldest of four. Um, I had uh, ADHD, which I still have, at a time where that wasn't really you know talked about as much. I was fortunate that my parents were proactive in seeking out speakers to learn about it. And my mom tells me this story of, you know, being four years old. <laughs> One day she hears fidgeting with the window and, and comes in and says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm climb I'm going to find a family that, you know, understands me. She said that was almost time for medication. And um, yeah, yeah. she started crying and, and the doctor said, lady, you don't cry now. You cry if it doesn't work. And back then she thought he was class. And she said, in time, I realized that he was absolutely right. And, and medication really helped to kind of repair our relationship. And, and it was obviously extremely helpful for me, you know, allowing me to kind of gain control of my emotions and my thoughts. And um, so, you know, that, that was the journey. I started a school for, for children with special needs. My, par I, my parents were told at first that I would never wow, attend. Wait, 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 wait. Seriously? Well, this is, the, the ADHD was uh, severe enough that they had you categorized as a special needs kid? I also had a learning disability, I think, around shapes and characters, which, as you can imagine, made Hebrew rather difficult. Yes, I imagine. I went to a school called Windward, which is an amazing place that really turned me around and gave me the, the tools that I needed that so many kids don't get who are unfortunately born with, with conditions like learning disabilities and yeah. ADHD. And what you know was able to enter public school by fourth grade and did end up attending you know university and even getting a master's so yeah you know tell me i can't do something and see what yeah happens. yeah no you're you are very successful now and so that's you know i i like highlighting that because it gives people hope you know that that uh, there are solutions to some of those learning disability problems and and, you know, in particular, ADHD is, is very, very common. I, I think folks have not realized how common. 
And I think our love affair with social media doesn't make that better. It, it, it tends to exacerbate that. So congratulations on overcoming those barriers on the way up. And uh, in elementary school, did you have any idea of what, uh, you know, did you dream about being a fireman when you grew up or did you have any aspirations or were you just kind of going with the flow? I think, I think, you know, as most boys do, I grew up with kind of, you know, watching the Braveheart and Gladiator type movies and, it was always uh, impressive to me, these people that kind of stood up for what they believed, regardless of the danger. And, and it was kind of something that um, stuck with me. You know, I, I was fortunate to have a lot of role models in my family. I, I'm thinking of my father's father, who was a very kind of principled man who, you know, would always kind of do what was right, even if it wasn't what was easy. And uh, I think that kind of ethos was in, um, ingrained in me from a young age, both from, you know, popular media culture etc but also from having role models like that yeah but i always kind of had that ideal that i knew i wanted to strive for in some capacity now you've overcome these uh challenges with learning disability adhd uh you're in uh elementary school then in high school uh, it, how does that are, are you hitting your stride by high school or or uh, what were your interests in that phase of your life well you know to tell you that as a teenage boy my main interests were not girls and you know <laughs> you know i i had uh, my eyes on the university of pennsylvania from a pretty young age my father, grandfather and uncle had gone there <laughs> given my struggles with academia early on it was kind of like this you know right upon a hill that seemed almost unattainable but as i you know progressed through high school and started to get good grades and get into these ap classes became something that was within reach and so I was pretty laser focused on that through much of high school. Probably worked harder in high school than I did in university, if we're being honest. Yeah, yeah. In, in high school, like the workloads that that well, they were putting on us and they still put on kids are, are pretty tremendous. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of time for, for, you know, a ton of other stuff. Right. Was this a Westchester public school that you were attending for high school? Is that? Uh, Scarsdale High School, which is really a phenomenal. Oh, yes. I've heard that name. Yes. So a, a, a very challenging curriculum, from what I understand, and and so hence the uh, the the downshift for college, which is the opposite of what most people experience if they've attended public schools. Wow. Uh, it, it, and I love the story uh, from special needs to AP. You know that is a huge transition uh, to go from one to the other, and you must have been very proud uh, to be able to accomplish that. And and of course, you know, uh, lots of support went into that. I'm sure. You know, one of the things that I've found, Corey, with uh, with people who have risen up, uh, overcome obstacles, they also they almost all will point to specific mentors, and uh, you know, some of that's family members. You mentioned your father's father. Were there other mentors along the way that you remember as being formative uh, for you? I think at, at various periods in my life, you know, I've had I've been fortunate to have different mentors. I, I think early on. You know, my my father certainly was, you know, someone that I held up as as kind of what success looked like. He had a family, he had, he had a kid, yeah, impressive career. When he took us to work, you know, he managed the whole trading floor that we were running around like rugrats uh, on. <laughs> so I think he was my and and remains honestly one of my my greatest role models. Um, and then, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this in a little bit, but as the the military in Israel kind of came into focus. There was a gentleman that I met on a trip to Israel named Danny, who had done uh, kind of what I wanted to do. He became a you know special operations paratrooper out of college, 
against the backdrop of people telling him that with a university education, it was a waste to, you know, go there. You should be yeah, doing something. Yeah. You know, we were sitting in this circle on Friday night in Jerusalem after he had spoken to us about some of the missions he'd been on. Someone asked to try on his red beret. And he and I had spoken a little bit before this. And as it was going around the circle, someone handed it to me and I handed it to the person next to me without trying it on. Mm. And he cut himself off and he said, do you know why you did that? And I said, no. He said, it's because you want to earn it. And, <laughs> and I knew in that moment that, that I was coming back. Um, and um, Branding has unfortunately since passed, but he was an incredible um, mentor to me um, throughout the years as I thought about what I needed to do to draft, um, what that process would look like. Um, and so, you know, he was certainly someone who, who helped shape my trajectory. So, so, Corey, this is fascinating. I want to back up a step here. And uh, we're, we're, we're in high school. And did, did you end up attending college before you uh, did your military service in Israel or was it after? It, it was, um, I, I did university first. Uh, to your point about kind of mentors in high school, we used to have these speakers that would come in, you know, once every three or four months. Yeah. And there was a gentleman by the name of Joe Opatowski from Free the Children, who was 21 years old when he came to speak to us. And he gave one of the most um, impassioned speeches that really put into kind of first person the suffering in the world that in a place like Scarsdale, you don't see. Things look yeah. lovely. Kind of imagine that the whole world looks like this rosy place. And he brought down, he connected to us in a way where we were like, he's one of us. And then he described a reality that was completely different. And it kind of awakened me to the tragedy that existed outside this bubble that well-meaning adults had built and to um, the fact that there were problems to be solved in the world. And so that's kind yeah. of what put me trajectory. I ran for student government. I started to look at, you know, what what problems existed in the world that I might be able to contribute towards helping in the Jewish community and beyond. Yeah. So so so, so you went to the University of Pennsylvania. I'm gonna, I'm I'm gonna I'm going back to the timeline now because I'm fascinated by that decision. It, you know, it had. Let, it, so what did you, what was your major at uh, Pennsylvania? International relations. So it was very always. The connections between people and countries. So um, it was kind of a natural natural choice for someone who was curious about the world and didn't really know what the heck he wanted to do when he got out of there. Because at 18, I, I still didn't really have that clear picture of what the post-university career would look like. So you are uh, on a path to, to study international relations. And, you know, first of all, I wasn't even aware before you and I met that there was a, an option for somebody who's raised in the U.S., an American citizen to go over to Israel and literally, uh, well, you, 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 we'll talk about the training in order to do this, but uh, literally serve in the Israeli military. Uh, when did you become aware that that was an option? Does everybody uh, know this except me, or is this? Uh... It was less and less common as you go further and further back uh, in time. Uh, the you know, scattered examples in the 80s and 90s of, of Americans that, that came over and, and did this. I mean, most people don't know that the Israeli Air Force was veteran, was American veterans of World War II, who in many cases stole surplus, I won't say stole surplus planes, they bought them, but at that time it was illegal to provide um, planes uh -huh. to a country that we were neutral with at best. They took them apart and then like C-130s to Europe and then flew them to Israel, and that was the basis of the Air Force. And actually, is 
probably why Israel won the independence war, because they were greatly outnumbered. Um, and without those three planes, I think, that formed the basis for the initial IAF, um, Israel wouldn't exist today. Wow. So I think the internet, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, reading books about people that had done it before me, I, I kind of, you know, as I was pulled towards Israel in, in college, I'd come across books from people who had done this thing that I wanted to do. There wasn't a ton of English language information on the web at the time that I drafted. Thankfully, now the IDF actually puts out content in English for people that want to do this. But when I told you that Danny, the gentleman that I met, who was the brother of someone on that trip I was on in Israel and when I was you know, 19, he had done this thing that I wanted to do. So he became kind of the resource that was helping me navigate uh, you know, what, what, what I would need to do to do this. Yeah, very interesting. Had you been to Israel before you uh, went? You had visited, right, if, as I recall? Yeah, and I had actually studied abroad my junior year, you know, spent six months there. I had already at that point kind of known that this was what I wanted to do. I'd probably been three times prior. And the there was a war that broke out, I believe a, a Gaza operation while I was uh, studying abroad. And I felt so passionate that I told my father I kind of wanted to drop out of university and enlist at that time. And he said, no, no, you don't. <laughs> so uh -huh. I was on paper. Well, you should finish the thing that you started and, and see it yeah. through. Ultimately, after university, it, you know, I, I went back and, and enlisted. You know, we see stories about the uh, U.S. military and boot camp and how hard it is and, and so forth. This, to me, is just another level because, first of all, uh, you have to speak pretty fluent Hebrew, right? Because otherwise, you can't understand instructions or... My parents in the, at the airport, before they let me get on the plane said, um, you know you know what duck means in Hebrew, right? <laughs> that was really one of the hardest parts is, you know, you come from a place where, you know, you're a leader, you can use your words to articulate your vision, and now you have the, you know, the comprehension skills of a 10-year-old trying to be a leader among people who are four years younger, and you, you can't really, right? Yeah. So a lot of times where I, I realized what the command was when everyone started running, and so I was a half step. <laughs> oh my goodness, I can't imagine. And, and tell us a little bit about uh, the physical commitment that you had to make in order to qualify uh, to be in the Israeli military. And you had your sights set on some particularly elite groups. So talk to us a little bit about that whole process and how long you trained. And So, so about, you know, six months before these tryouts, um, you know, Israelis know about these things for years. And so they train all through high school the way, you know, we might train for anything else, basketball, soccer. So I was a little bit late to the game. I had kept in shape in, in college, so I wasn't starting at zero, but mm -hmm. it's different type of training you know that what we would do is run up um sand mountains in tel aviv with stretchers and is that you are going to reach your breaking point there's no amount of physical strength uh, and stamina that you can acquire that will equip you to deal with what they're asking of you they want to see how you react when you've reached that point right. you know it's not just the physical right when you actually have these tryouts which are usually three to five days They'll play mind games with you. You know, the first nine hours you'll do sprints back and forth. You'll be crawling over rocks, right? How badly do you want it is the question. And a lot of people quit during that time. They decide yeah. it's not worth it. And then, you know, at your water break, they'll tell you, all right, you know, we only have three more days of this. And you're like, oh my God, is it really going to go for three more days? And it's oh not. 
but you don't know. You, you have no idea what's coming. And so they, they want to test your mental fortitude. And so that's what they tried to, I think, suss out in, in those trials is do you have the mental fortitude for them to provide you with the, the physical strength that you'll need to become an effective member of, of those units? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the other thing that strikes me about uh, uh, the Israeli position, if you will, is that it is, uh, you know, dead center in the midst of modern uh, warfare, which is not army against army anymore. You know, it's uh, it's embedded in civilian populations, and there are uprisings, and there are, you know, you don't know who to trust and who you can't trust, and and that ill will that's been bred across uh, cultures is palpable just a really intense situation to be immersed in as a young man. Uh, and it really is remarkable that we don't see uh, more uh, military breakpoints. And what I mean by that is I'm impressed at how well uh, the military overall keeps its cool in the midst of this incredible challenge. Uh, it, talk to us a little bit about... Uh, how that landed on you and, and what you thought about as you were going through this process. You know, I had come up reading the stories of, you know, the the founding fathers of Israel, right, who are not so far removed like they are in this country. We're talking about, you know, men and women in the 30s and 40s yes. who built this country. It was, you know, Israel became a state in the 40s. So I had this kind of quite idealistic vision, I think, of, of what Israel was to them. Um, yeah. But then you get to a place and it has, you know, the realities on the ground are never as pretty as the picture that you, you paint from a distance. At the time, I don't think I necessarily appreciated all of that. It was a pretty clear battle between good and evil, right and wrong. Um, and it's with the benefit of having some distance from the events that you start to see that, uh, as Amos Oz said, who's an, uh, you know, a famous is Israeli poet, the definition of a tragedy is when both sides are right. You know, if you're yeah. a Palestinian who's now traveling two and a half hours to get to your uh, field on the other side of that fence, that sucks. We, we yeah. can acknowledge that sucks without, you know, Israel's not perfect. It, you know, the, the challenge is Israel is held to a standard that no other country is held to. There's more uh, UN condemnations of Israel than any other country, sure. Iran, China, Syria. So, you know, wow. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. I think there have been 95 condemnations by the UN Human Rights Council of, of Israel. I mean, we see Iran on there and we understand the farce that the, the Human Rights Council has become. But, um, it, you know, Israel does more. And, and this is a direct quote from Richard Kemp, who's the, who was the commander of British forces in Afghanistan, not Jewish, not Israeli. He said, you know, from my observations on the ground during two Gaza operations, Israel does more to safeguard the rights of civilians in a combat zone than any military in the history of warfare. And having been in uh, dicey situations, I agree, right? I, I think we go way out of our way to try to prevent the unfortunate reality of war, which is that good people, innocent people will be killed. War is not a pretty thing. It's not a clean thing. Um, and the best you can do is try your best. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think about... Um, when Israel went door to door in Jenin, one of these refugee camps, yes. uh, the mothers of the dozens of soldiers who were killed actually sued the government of Israel for excessive restraint. Uh, Finally, military where where that's going to happen. So Israel's not perfect, but but as you pointed out, being in the mix, um, you get 
savvy real quick on on the, the situation that you find yourself in. And that whole experience for you was was it a how many years was this? My mandatory service was three years, and I actually still do my uh, Army Reserves training. So I've been. This will be my tenth year of, of reserves. And so you are on reserve in the event of some major catastrophe. You are poised to to return and contribute to, if need be. Yeah, I, you know, usually the the when the reserve tra- it, the reserves is just training. It's like a, a week of training. But every few years, we also have uh, as as we do this year, something called COV, where you are deployed and you are doing guard duty admissions in a certain uh, center of operations. So, you know, you, you'll do that for two weeks every couple of years. And then as you point out, if there were to be a large scale multi-front war, um, then we would be called back. Uh, you know, the notion that you just expressed, which is our job is to try to keep the peace in an impossible situation and we do the best we can. And and people who raise their hand and volunteer for that kind of service, uh, uh, you know, it's it's just uh, for many of us here in the uh, in the West, it's unimaginable. You know, we don't have a clear idea of what that's like. Now, that's not to diminish uh, you know soldiers that have uh, worked in uh, Afghanistan and served in in the military in some of those zones where it's equally challenging uh, to to be, but. It's a way of life in Israel. There's no engagement uh, that's over. It is continuous, and uh, and every once in a while, a spark will light a a little uh, conflagration, and and you're the guys who respond to it. And that's uh, it's a noble effort. It really is. What are do you have any regrets about uh, participating, or are there any things you wish you had done differently, or how do you think about it today? You know. Leadership was kind of something that I was striving for at, at a young age, and I think one of the, the main things that held me back from being able to lead the way I wanted was was language. Ah, I might have started taking Hebrew lessons earlier because I, I never was chosen for command. Probably for that reason, it's it's kind of hard when you're you know if yeah. you're yelling over the radio and you're not sure that the person on the receiving end is going to understand. That's a problem. And <laughs> and by the way, just as an aside, you know. I'm sure you have listeners from all sides of the political spectrum. It's not always easy to get the the truth from the source. And so if there's anyone, even someone who vehemently disagrees with me, who you know wants to have a conversation about this, I'm sure you'll put my contact information in here. I'm an open book and would be happy to share my own experiences. You know, I'm no expert in Middle Eastern affairs, but you know, it's it's a I think we have to be willing to have dialogues if there's any hope of reaching common ground. So that's just an offer that I'll extend to any of your listeners. Thank you for that, uh, Corey. And and by the way, I have read your book. Uh, it, it, tell everybody uh, what the name of that is and where they can find it. Oh, well, thank you, by the way. Uh, the book is called A Line in the Sand, and it documents my journey you know, through the Israeli Special Forces. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, basically online wherever books are sold. I have to say that having read the book, uh, you take a very balanced approach. It, it really, it's not, uh, uh, it, it is not a political book. It is a book about uh, human experience. And uh, one of the, uh, the challenges of pushing human uh, capabilities to the limit. And, and in some sense, it's also about what you mentioned earlier, is that, uh, you know, a tragedy is when both sides are right in some sense. And uh, so it's a very balanced view of it, and I commend you for that as well. 
I, I want to leave that uh, that part of the the story now and move to how in the world did you get involved in healthcare? What's that story? Yeah, well, I I had taken a job with an Israeli company, the military. Uh, I knew I liked Israelis and Israeli companies, so it seemed like a good idea. Um, they were kind enough to allow me to open up their South American operations in Brazil. So that required yet another language. So I, I spent about four or five months learning Portuguese. Well, yeah, a childhood friend of mine, David Gelbard, actually reached out and said, you know, I've started a company in healthcare. And if you can learn Portuguese, you can learn healthcare. So come figure this out with me. And he showed me some graphs. He's very good at uh, numbers and charts and uh, explained to me why uh, ad tech was going in the wrong direction and healthcare was going in the right direction. And uh, he's, a, he's a very convincing guy. So I said, let's do it. Boy, am I glad I did. Everyone has a story about how they were impacted by uh, healthcare. You know, my brother struggled with ulcerative colitis. He underwent eight surgeries at the age of uh, eight, about 150 days in the hospital. And so I saw firsthand, you know, thank God what good healthcare looks like, what complications look like, what fighting with insurance companies look like. And so I, it wasn't necessarily something that I arrived at on my own, but once I started working with Parachute, and saw that you could work in this place where you're pushing innovation that makes a difference, you're changing people's lives, I was hooked. Um, I felt that same sort of feeling of contribution to something that was was larger. Um, and so that that was kind of my forte into healthcare. I spent about three years there helping to build out the, the sales organization and our go-to-market strategy. After you were there for three years, what's the next phase and how did that take place? And, and you know, keep moving us along that timeline to where you are today. Yeah, sure. And, you know, I, I kind of increasingly sought out uh, opportunities to be closer to the, the the starting point. And so, you know, David, who was the CEO of Parachute, introduced me to, he had previously built a, a very successful healthcare company, and he was starting up a company called Emicare. Unfortunately, we were selling to doctors, primary care doctors in March of 2020. Yeah. Uh, not the best timing. And um, so, you know, we, we tried and we tried a bunch of different angles. We had a, a very amicable um, um, schism, but um, we shook hands and kind of went our separate ways. He went back to the drawing board and they're, they're still at it now. You know, they've, they've come back in the wake of uh, COVID and have built a, a business that, from what I understand, is doing pretty well. Having left that Master of Healthcare Innovation program at Penn around that time, I got to zoom out a little bit. And, and say, okay, well, what within healthcare is most interesting to me? Am I most passionate about? And I kind of identified these three areas in the form of, you know, the move to from fee-for-service to value, the behavioral health space, Good. and then the management of chronic disease. So I was looking for an opportunity to be trusted to play in the behavioral health space for the first time, lead and build a team, and interact with payers. So these were kind of three things that I had not done much of other than the leadership aspect. And so it took a while to find a, a company that was willing to take a chance on yeah. me. And, um, I ended up at Elios, which is a fantastic company. They do artificial intelligence for psychotherapy. Right. Um, it was a short stint for you know a number of reasons, but, um, but a very uh, impactful one that allowed me to gain experience in a different space. It also illuminated for me that there was this kind of hole in my understanding of healthcare in in the form of health plans. And so that's what landed me where I am today at Leverage Health. So at Leverage Health, we have a portfolio of healthcare service and technology companies. We serve as their outsourced chief growth officers. 
and we help these companies scale into health insurance plans. So gotcha. you know, Richard and um, and Charlie Falcone have built this business over 17 years um, and have built some real deep, uh, meaningful relationships in the payer space. And it allows us to be consultative in nature, to be able to have conversations with folks who've become friends and say, what are your challenges this year? What are you looking at? And when and if those challenges align with a company in our portfolio, we're able to make that introduction and it's great. Um, and it, and that contrasts with when you are you know, the head of sales for a single company or point solution, you, you're kind of a one trick pony, right? You have one thing that you're doing and it's either gonna resonate or it's not. So I've loved the opportunity to have high level conversations, um, gain a deeper understanding of American health insurance, especially on the payer side. Um, and it's and it's been a great journey for the last you know fifteen or sixteen months or so. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, give us an idea of what kinds of uh, companies you're talking about, and how do they find Leverage Health? How does that relationship develop? We look for companies that are kind of on the cusp of something that everyone's going to talk about. So, not necessarily CKD, um, you know, diabetes, the stuff that's already kind of front and center. But we are looking at the stuff that in two to three years' time is going to be monumentally important so that we can get a little bit ahead of the curve. And as folks are thinking about where healthcare is going, we can be there to, to help them shape that future. So, you know, one area I think about is, you know, costly biologics and the treatment of skin conditions. Yep. Um, we have a company that, um, that, you know, has a FDA approved laser device to, to help address that. Mm. Um, the, the thing that is unique is that no, no two companies compete with each other, whether it's, you know, our MSKPT solution, whether it's uh, you know value-based care enablement in the form of uh, another one of our companies, right? They all kind of have their own lane, right? Um, and so when we go to a payer and we say, you know, what what challenge are you struggling with? We can be specific about what we feel is the best jockey to bet on in that particular category. Vetting those uh, programs that you choose to to work with, or those solutions that you choose to work with, is there? Is there a process there, or is it an alignment uh, uh, of cultures issue? How do you how do you decide this is the the best bet for us in uh, behavioral health, or uh, you know telebehavioral health as a, an example that you may or may not be in? But how do you make those decisions? Well, fortunately for me, I don't have to make them. Um, that, that's, <laughs> but you know, we we do look at the financials. We look at you know, is this solving a real problem? And, and part of the benefit of having these deep relationships across many health plans is that we ask first, you know, we'll talk to our partners and say, hey, we're thinking about company X or Y, but, but also we'll be proactive, right? If we're talking to our partners in health plan land and they're all saying the same thing, you know, cost of care, uh, MSK spend is, is growing out of control. We're going to look for a company that's going to check that box. What is the... I guess the advantage to these uh, companies, and they sound like they're mid-stage. These aren't uh, necessarily, uh, you know, Series A startups. Uh, do you invest money uh, in these ventures as well? Sometimes it, it's a pretty wide range. I mean, we've also, you know, we bought a company out of Optum, um, which we've rolled up to now become the largest uh, uh, credentialing business in America in the form of Verisys. So th they are all at very different stages in their growth. But what we are really looking for is, is a company that's proven itself with health plans um, and has uh, has a product that's ready for the health plan market that our relationships can help to accelerate. Help me understand how 
Leverage Health makes its money. Where, do, where does the revenue stream come from? What's the model there? Yeah, so so we make our money exclusively from our portfolio companies. So we never take money from health plans, not for the consult, not for the consults, not for the relationships. Um, we really just want to be trusted advisors on that side of the business. And for the uh, from the companies themselves, it kind of looks different every time. You know, no two companies are alike, and so we know what our you know revenue target is or what we want to turn as a profit over the course of the you know three to five year relationship. And we'll back into that through a combination of cash and equity, usually in exchange for milestones and you know logos that we're bringing in um, and value that we're we're able to add. And and that's ultimately how we get compensated for that work. You've been very generous with your time, and I I don't want to take. Uh, more than is uh, is necessary, but let me let me ask you: What do you see as the biggest challenges in healthcare today, and uh, how do you think about you know how we go about fixing those? I mean, obviously, everybody uh, is interested in that same question, and there are lots of perspectives on this. I'm interested in yours. I, I mean, the two that come to mind, uh, you know, particularly coming out of COVID, you know, cost of care is. A massive focus for everything. I, I think I read that something like forty percent of rural hospitals are going to be uh, in the red this year. It's it's a really tough time when we're thinking about the cost of of care delivery. In terms of the reasons, you know, there's a lot of middlemen in healthcare. Yes, there's a proliferation of point solutions in the market, and at Leverage, we do see a lot of companies. And the model that we've seen that's successful. Uh, are ones where it's more than just a, a single pain point that 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 company is seeking to solve. Um, and and by the way, we have companies that are successful because the thing that they're targeting is at the top of that list of the three things that are driving the main cost of care. You know, I spoke to a, the CEO of a health plan last week who said my biggest issue is costly biologics for the treatment of skin conditions. Right, but. In a lot, of, in a, in another sense, we have companies that are taking clinical care and technology and marrying them together. And when you think about the shortages of clinicians in this country, short of cloning them, yeah. the best way for them is to give them digital tools that automate the parts of their job that, uh, frankly, they don't need to do. Right? Whether it's documentation, um, you know, whether it's you know, I think a good example that I use is Recovery One, just because we've all done PT before. But you know, with the AI kind of measuring your range of motion, you can do your PT without the PT, while your phone measures your range of movement. And then, if you need to speak to a PT, you press a button and you speak to the PT because this exercise is hurting me. I contrast that with the physical therapy that I do in person now, where you know my PT will see five or six people at once, and if three of us need his help. Or we're out of luck and we're waiting in line as yeah. opposed to the man nature, right? So I think about technology married with clinical intervention as kind of the future of um, successful innovation. Yeah. When I think about the market as a whole and kind of where I'd want to focus as an entrepreneur, I, I do believe that some combination of, of clinical care delivery and technology together is a good formula for um, a company that's going to be successful looking forward. Yeah, you know, I absolutely agree with that, Corey. And, and uh, I've, I've been thinking about this, obviously, a lot over the last uh, several years. You know, what what is it that we need? And our, our you know, previous focus had been on uh, metabolic diseases and behavioral health. We're not reducing our, our focus on those two issues because they drive so much of the, of the cost today. 
Um, and lately, what we've turned to is something that you've mentioned is it's to what extent can we automate routine and redundant tasks that don't need to be done uh, by human beings? And, you know, so workforce automation, as you know, there's a huge crunch now for talent. Um, yeah, the, the, uh, uh, the caregivers in healthcare, whether doctors or nurses or others, we're aging. You know, uh, many of them are my age or, or, or higher, and a lot of them are thinking about retirement. And you add to that the pandemic and physician burnout and nurse burnout, and it's a real problem in healthcare, and uh, it will drive a lot of healthcare inflation as well because salaries have to come up to attract the kind of people that we want. Uh, so that workforce automation is a key. The other one that I uh, tend to focus on, I'd be interested in your your take on this. So many of these point solutions uh, have single-digit engagement. And and so one of the other areas that I've been very focused on uh, for the last year is patient engagement. And whether it's a, a nudge theory or a Vegas theory, uh, you know, how do we get patients to really want to do the things that we know will improve their health? So that's the other area where I've been uh, pretty intensely focused. And uh, uh, Matt, what's your take on on those issues? You know, I, I think if we were to think about healthcare more from an entrepreneur's perspective, the brilliance of Waze is that you don't have to do anything for it to gather data that it can then provide to other users for them to understand where there's traffic and where there's not traffic. So, you know, I, I think about when I was an early stage employee at Emicare, I was launching this in the projects of, of the Bronx and I walked into a woman's apartment. She had to be 50 on dialysis. I mean, really tragic. And one way to help her download the app. Turns out her phone network didn't have service in her building. So I had to hold my phone out the window on a hotspot, um, which she's not going to do, right? With, you know, hooked yeah. up to uh, at home dialysis. And, and you start to realize the barriers that you didn't even perceive to be there, right? And, and so when I think about innovation, I think about entrepreneurs who are willing to roll up their sleeves and go into the patient's home and see what their reality is like. I think that's what made us so successful at Parachute is that we actually went into the hospitals, sat with the case managers, watched their workflow. Epic's not doing that, you know? And, you know, for that reason, the Epic DME module is pretty bad, right? Because it's not actually solving the pain point of the people that are doing the ordering. And we have a company in our portfolio who does just this. They engage members who slip below the radar with health plans because they're not spending Fifty thousand a year. They're spending twenty thousand, but over fifty doctors' appointments. Yeah, they have a seventy percent engagement rate um, with their patients. I still haven't figured out exactly how they do it. It's a it's a, it's a secret formula. Right. But uh, there are companies out there that have figured out how it is that you get in touch with people. It might be an interesting point to transition into the MA world because one of the benefits of of Medicare Advantage is that it does pay for that high value care, and so you do get to go into the home and see what a patient's reality looks like and you gain information about them that you would never gain otherwise. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, Corey, I, I, I think that is excellent advice and it's, uh, uh, it's age old in one sense. It's like, if you want to solve a problem, you have to understand it. And it's impossible to understand the nuances of problems at the 50,000 foot level. You got to get down to ground level and really uh, participate, if you will, in the process to understand what the problems are. So I think that's excellent advice. And 
and uh, one that a lot of tech companies should heed more often. You really need to know what the problem is or you're never going to solve it. So that's excellent advice. I, 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 I know that uh, uh, Medicare Advantage has gotten a lot of criticism of late. Uh, I'm sure there are issues with it, but I'm with you in that it's the plan that makes the most sense as an option for moving forward because it does allow uh, for the the creativity, the additional services that people actually need in order to achieve health. And so I'm I'm with you on that as well. I think there's some uh, some changes that probably need to be made to it. But I, for example, would much rather see uh, Medicare Advantage for all. Uh, than Medicare for all, because I think in the latter, all we do is lock in place a flawed system that's exorbitantly expensive, and uh, the the expense continues to rise without additional services added. And so MA makes a lot more sense to me in the long run. Is that how you see the the world as well? Yeah. You know, I was too young at the time, but I've obviously since read up on, on kind of how this all came to, to begin in you know, the, the 80s and 90s and how you could only compensate based on demographic factors, which didn't allow you to really account for the disease state of, of the patient. And that doesn't work on one end of the spectrum. On the other, when you pay more for every you know condition code that you add, you have an incentive to add more condition codes. Yes. I think where we're at today is better than what we had then because at least people are incentivized to find the sickest patients. Whether we're paying too much for it, we can debate. But I think if our first priority is patient care, Certainly, this new system works better than a system that incentivizes quantity over quality. Yep. But Medicare Advantage, you know, to your point, does compensate um, finding problems and trying to fix them, right, in a way that service Medicare does not do. I want to uh, uh, give you the final word here as we wrap things up today. Uh, first, I want to to give you the opportunity to to tell listeners how they can get in touch with you and with Leverage Health and. Uh, you have a podcast. You have all kinds of things going on. Fill us in on on what those options are and how we can access them. Thanks. So the podcast is Healthcare Reimagined. It's on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, I can be emailed at you know Corey at leveragehealth.com, C O R E Y at leveragehealth.com, and I'm sure you can put that in the show notes. Yep. You know, if you're a, a young company, even if you're kind of earlier in the stage that than what we were discussing on the podcast, and you want to have a conversation. I'm always curious to chat with entrepreneurs that are doing interesting things. Uh, if you are a health plan that wants to talk about what we're hearing in the market, uh, we're happy to have that conversation. So in general, we love having conversations. Uh, we can be found uh, on the web at leveragehealth.com. Um, but again, always open to conversations. So feel free to email me directly. And Dr. Gross, thank you, by the way, so much for for having me on this podcast. I've really enjoyed the chance to... Corey, it's been my pleasure. And... and uh... Lest anyone should forget, if you want to uh, have an incredibly interesting, balanced read of uh, the Israeli military, I suggest A Line in the Sand by uh, none other than uh, the man in front of you, Corey Feldman. A great read. I really enjoyed it. And with that, I'm going to end with one last question for you, and that is, what's your number one tip? for aspiring leaders in healthcare. I was I was uh, meeting with the the CEO of a of a health plan last week who mentioned the book Turning the Ship Around. Uh, he was a submarine captain and he had the best ship in the navy and they put him on the worst ship in the navy and within 6 months 
it was performing as the best ship in the Navy. What did he do? He didn't know enough about any of the individual components of the ship. What he had to do was empower the leaders in charge of those various stations. Mm. And he changed the language from, sir, we have this problem. What do we do? To, I'm considering doing X. He empowered people to make the decisions and gave them ownership of the decisions, which obviously comes with responsibility. And in so doing, he empowered them to become the best ship. And it was his stewardship that, that got them there. So I think across any industry, it's about empowering people to lead. Uh, you know, the fact that, you know, my boss lets me get on this podcast and have this conversation about us is a good example of empowerment, right? You want people to feel free to grow within their roles and feel like they have some ownership of their fate. And and I think if you can do that, what you create is people who are inspired to to do their best for, on your behalf and for the sake of your mission. Well, Corey Feldman, it has been an absolute delight to talk to you today. And that's great advice for leaders. Uh, I just want to say I, I, I consider you a friend and colleague now, and, and I couldn't be happier to, uh, to know you. And uh, with that, we are going to say so long for the Groves Connection. Until next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Groves Connection, your connection to the inside story on healthcare, featuring in-depth interviews with those who know. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review to keep the connection going, and hit the subscribe button to be sure you never miss a beat. The Groves Connection is produced by Dr. Robert Groves. Original music, editing, and creative direction provided by Alden Groves. Production support, content guidance, courtesy of Janae Sharp and Elizabeth Barrett. Thank you for listening. The professional ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and do not reflect those of any current or past employers. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Groves Connection.